0: I was reading an article online recently that was detailing how a wound uh, heals. Uh, There's this little minor miracle that happens when you get a cut or a scratch that even whether you realize that it happened or not, you eventually forget about it. And lo and behold, in a couple of weeks, it's gone like magic. But it turns out that your body is perfectly equipped to heal that wound. It begins, of course, with blood rushing to the place of it so that it can immediately clot and form a scab. That scab exists to protect the wound while it gets ready to start the healing process. It's also the signal to let your immune system kick into gear and for your white blood cells to be fighting off infection. And as gross as it is, sometimes there's a little ooze to it, right, that's doing what it's supposed to do by purifying the wound and keeping it from getting infected and not unclean. Those blood vessels, though, they end up opening up and they they flood the wound with oxygen, which is really the only way that healing starts to take place. And all that's just protection for the wound. Eventually what happens is it begins to literally rebuild tissue. Those cells end up creating collagen, these tough little white fibers upon which becomes the foundation for the new tissue. Apparently there's this thing called granulation tissue that forms over the wound so that it can begin to provide a place for the skin to grow. And slowly over time it comes together until it's completely closed up. I mean really it's, it's remarkable. <laughs> and what's even more remarkable is it happens without any real effort on our part at all. And it occurred to me to think about that because we begin today the last leg of what has been a three-year journey from the pulpit here at Christ Prez of unpacking what we believe our mission is to be in this community. You've heard us say it every single time, that we exist to proclaim a hope, build a home, and launch a healing. So we started a couple of years ago looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we found out there that the whole Bible is a document of hope because it proclaims the intentions and designs of the God of the universe, culminating in the revelation of Jesus Christ and his his work on the cross. The next year, we studied two books, Exodus and Ephesians, one from the old, one from the new, only to find out that it was not God's intention just to save a bunch of isolated individuals, but to save a group of people. A society, as it were, a, a body of people, and in the, and God, in so doing, created a home. His longing was to create a multi-ethnic, multinational, multicultural group of people that we refer to as the church. That's what we mean when we talk about a home. And I realize that for religious types like ourselves, we we talk like that, but it can oftentimes sound naive to people when they ask, "Okay, fine." But what are you going to do about the brokenness of the world? Religious people sound kind of naive when we start to talk about these things because we don't realize that we need real solutions to exactly how we go about healing the divisions that we have. And by the way, if you're not convinced that we're a divided people, you're just not paying attention. The divisions are everywhere. It starts inside our own heads. My head doesn't agree with my heart. My my mind doesn't cooperate with my will. The good I try to do, that's the thing I keep not doing. We're divided in our marriages. Something that started out like such a good idea turned out hard for some reason. And for whatever reason, it affects everything that we do. Our homes are divided. You play armchair psychiatrist all you want, but it's hard to know what my teenager is thinking and how to get them under control, right? We're divided in our city. Our leaders, I know, have done all they can to remind us of what unites us rather than divides it, but but stick your big toe in social media uh, at one point and see how well we're doing with speaking to one another. We're divided in our resources. We have division between poverty and affluence, which root us in privilege and resentment. Finally, do I even need to say that we're divided in our politics? (laughs) I ain't even gonna go there. But I mean, is anyone not exhausted by 2020? Here's my point. Your body knows how to heal the wounds in you. But for human beings, it is nowhere near as intuitive. And so this has to be stated clearly. It is the belief of this church that the Bible actually does know how to heal a broken society. You know, last semester we found out that when God sort of freed these, uh, these Egyptian slaves, these Jewish people... He immediately sent them into the wilderness, hold that thought, so that they could learn about the character of God. But it wasn't just the character of God they learned about, was it? They also learned about themselves. (laughs) But here's the kicker. Not a one of them found it able to follow those laws. The rest of the Old Testament is just this catalog of failure after failure of God's people to live up to this standard. So no matter how hard God's people tried, they were continually plagued by these um, competing visions of what life was really about, or what the Old Testament would call idols. So that if you read through the Old Testament, you come away with this distinctive impression that they were waiting for something, or maybe someone. And all of a sudden, what comes along is a young prophet from a decidedly blue-collar background who starts talking about this very topic, He too thinks that the world is broken. He too believes that human beings were created to flourish in this world. But they're jaded and misaligned, being sinned against and sinning against others. So that in Matthew chapter five, verse one, he gathers a crowd, climbs up on a little rise in the landscape and starts to preach the Sermon on the Mount. But I wanna try to frame the best way to read this sermon this morning. But in order to do so, I feel like we need to sort of bring out something that's implicit throughout Jesus' sermon. And it's this, your flourishing or your lack thereof is inevitably wrapped up in your understanding of the good life, of your good life. And therefore, your healing by extension and the healing of society is always going to be framed and controlled by the vision you have in your head of how things ought to be. That's what controls this. And so I think before we begin, you almost have to delve into your own fantasies about what life should be about for the moment. I mean, really, what is your idea of the ideal life? Have you ever come to terms or admitted to yourself what the, what the terms of your own happiness actually are? Have you spent any time questioning your life plan as, as to whether it was even plausible to begin with? I like to ask people, have you examined why it was you moved to Oxford? What is it that we wanted when we came here? A good job? Well-adjusted, obedient, and non-embarrassing children? an attractive spouse, a compliant spouse, financial self-security? What is it? What is your version of the good life? And we don't need to understand how the body works in order for wounds to heal, but it sure helps us when we're trying to approach society to know how it is that it's going to happen. And so in introducing this sermon, I want to submit that there actually are two wrong ways of looking at our healing and one right way. And unlike our little scrapes and cuts, we need to dive into this to understand how we can heal properly. So three points. I want to look first of all at attaining blessing and avoiding perfection as two false ways of understanding the sermon, but finally acknowledging authority as the real heart of how we do. Let's take that first one. What do we mean when we say that it's a wrong way of reading the sermon, that it's about attaining blessing. I think you can miss what Jesus wants you to know by figuring out exactly what that word blessed means in the first part of these Beatitudes. I mean, be honest. Next to John 3, 16, uh, is there a more famous verse in the Bible than Matthew 5, 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, it says. And that word blessed there is really famously hard to pin down. And the translation challenge, I think, is one of the reasons it leads to the misunderstanding of the sermon a commentator by the name of Scott McKnight. You're going to hear his name often this semester. He says, if you get this word right, the rest falls into place. If you get it wrong, the whole thing falls apart. If you understand that word blessed. Well, the Greek word there that might help you to know is the word makarios. And we have all kinds of examples in ancient literature where where a a sort of an idea of a version of that word is placed alongside a condition. And it makes a little, a little proverb, or what we've come to know as a beatitude. And so what happens is, is these beatitudes, as they come together, if you don't understand what that word blessed means, you can really strongly misread them. For instance, you could read that very first beatitude as if it says, those who are poor in spirit will be blessed by God. Is that what it means? In other words, if only you were more poor in spirit you would receive this blessing that God gives to you. God gives favor to you when you do so. And therefore, if you really want to live your best life now, here's the way to do it. by poverty of spirit. Some translations will trade the word blessed, because they understand the difficulty, with the word happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. But I'm not not all that comfortable with that either. For this reason, it roots the question in, in, in the realm of your emotions exclusively, does it not? Because what happens is, that doesn't work when you get to blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those that mourn? Doesn't work, does it? And so what that means is, is we've got to do a little digging, a little Bible study here. So bear with me this morning. And what will happen is, if you could grab the sort of, the, the Greek t- translation of the Old Testament, that we call the Septuagint, and see how they translated certain Hebrew words there, It'll unlock a lot of stuff. Now, there's tons of places in the Old Testament where the word "makarios" is translating the Hebrew word "asare." And "asare" appears in a lot of places, but mostly in the Psalms. Let me just give you a quick handful. Listen to the theme coming out here. Psalm one one: Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm two twelve: Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Psalm thirty three twelve. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. Again, there's a dozens more, but think about those passages. They are, say, they are not saying, you know, you're going to get a blessing from God if you just do these things. Rather, what they mean is that when someone lives in the pattern of life that this little, little proverb, this beatitude is describing, man, you are flourishing. <laughs> you are living the good life. You have arrived at it if you're living in this pattern. Do you see the difference between those? One of my favorite commentators put it this way. He says, Jesus begins his public ministry by painting a picture of what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like. He's making an appeal and casting an inspiring vision, just like the Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah do, for what true well-being looks like in the coming of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus is talking about a pattern of living that leads to his definition of the good life. The the Beatitudes are not transactional. (laughs) They're descriptive. And it's so easy to miss this. My illustration popped up a few weeks ago. Kurt came into the office. Kurt and I now have offices right next to each other. And I'm sure I'm driving him crazy, but we always get to kind of exchange whatever story we had. Well, he was coming back the other day from a trip to the Uh, to the grocery store, and he only had two or three items that he was buying from the grocery store, and he got behind a woman who had a cart loaded up to the top, and he only had his couple of things, but he stood in line, and the lady turned around and looked at him and was like, hey, you've just got a couple things, why don't you go in front of me? Well, Kurt Presley, being the uh, uh, gentleman that he is, absolutely insisted that was not going to be the case. No, 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 I don't mind waiting at all, to which she responded. She goes, now look, don't you cause me to lose my blessing. Now look, I'm as charmed by that story as anybody else. That's not what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not showing us a pathway to God. What he's doing is is he's describing the good life. The life that his followers will come to know when they understand what he's about. Okay, So that's what it means when we talk about attaining blessing. That's not what Jesus is referring to. But what about the second one? The second word I want you to focus on, avoiding Perfection. Because you get this word perfection, and it comes to us like a, like a ton of bricks. In chapter 5, verse 48, look what it says. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, now look. That word perfect there is the Greek word teleos. You had no idea you'd learn as much Greek this morning as you did, right? That's the root word for all kinds of words. Some of you are familiar with the word telos. Telos means the end, right? Or where everything is headed, uh, you know, John nineteen thirty. When Jesus dies on the cross, he says it is finished. Okay, that word is that's a word. It's a form of the word telios, and unfortunately, our translation says that it is perfect. Now, look. Once you know what that word actually means, you'll understand why they use that word. But if you don't, man, it, it'll cause some very serious problems in how you read the sermon. And again, once again, the best way to do this is to go back to how the Old Testament, that Septuagint, translated these words from the Old Testament. And there we find that every time the word perfect was used in Greek, it was translating the Hebrew word shalom. Hannah, look, you ain't got to know a whole lot of Hebrew words when it comes to coming to church. That's a big one. Shalom is one you need to have a working knowledge of because it is huge in the Old Testament. Shalom is, is a wish for someone else's prosperity. It, it, it's, it's a, you're wishing them to be in a state of freedom, and wor- a freedom of worry and conflict. You, you want, you're wishing them to be whole, integrated people. If you're experiencing shalom, it means that all of the parts of your life, your health, your friendships, your finances, everything's working in harmony with one another, This is the reason why, when you see it translated into English from Hebrew, it's often translated as the word peace. Two examples, Psalm 122, pray for the peace, shalom, of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Zechariah 3.13 predicts the coming of a king who's going to sit on the throne of Israel. He says this, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of shalom shall be between both of them. You hear the theme? It's harmony. It's wholeness. Now, why am I going into this? Well, because for so many people, when you hit Matthew 5, 48, it kind of becomes a theme for the whole sermon, right? And Jesus looks and goes, hey, be as perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And you can kind of feel a little giggle coming up in you. You're like, oh, is that all? (laughs) You want me to be as perfect as God, Great, Jesus. I don't know. Maybe you could move the goalposts a little bit closer to our day-to-day experiences. And if you begin to think about that, here's what's funny. That's not completely false. And I'm not completely disagreeing with that, right? But Jesus is not talking about moral perfection. He's talking about a whole life. He's talking about an integrated person. He's talking about a life where your inside intentions match your outside actions. That's what I mean by integrated. Not just the peace with God, but the peace of God. But when you read that word perfect, your temptation's looking and be like, well, here's the deal. Nobody's capable of that, so why bother? Isn't that what we do? Sometimes you'll hear people look and say, well, you know, why should you even try with that? And there's a sense in which that's true, that the gist of the sermon is trying to get you sort of to uncover a helplessness inside of you. But unfortunately, what we tend to do is, is we use the sort of difficulty of the Sermon on the Mount as an excuse to ignore it. To where you have people sometimes say things like, look, hey, don't stress yourself out about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't intend for anybody to keep it. He just preached it so that you could see how far short you fall of it. Hmm. Okay, like I said, there is a sense in which I think that's true. But man, do you miss something massive about what Jesus is actually trying to say because he's outlaying for us exactly what the good life looks like. Oh, I found this wonderful quote by Stanley Hauerwas when he said this. He says, when he called his society together, Jesus gave its members a new way to live life. Listen to this. He says he gave them a new way to deal with offenders by forgiving them. He gave them a new way to deal with violence by suffering He gave them a new way to deal with money by sharing it. He gave them a new way to deal with problems of leadership by drawing on the gift of every member, even the most humble. He gave them a new way to deal with a corrupt society by building a new order, not by smashing the old. Let the reader understand. He gave them a new pattern of relationship between man and a woman, between a parent and a child, between a master and a slave, in which was made concrete a radical new vision of what it means to be a human person. So you understand, when Jesus says, be perfect, he means, be whole, be perfected, maybe. Be a part of this integrated life that I'm trying to restore ever since it was destroyed in the Garden of Eden. That's what he's saying. So my point is, don't ignore the sermon just because it looks inaccessible. Okay, so those are my two wrong ways of looking at the sermon. There's a third word we can look at that unpacks it, which is to acknowledge authority. Authority is another big word. And it's interesting, the word doesn't appear inside of the sermon, but it actually appears at the very end, after people had listened to Jesus preach the sermon. If you fast forward to chapter seven, verse 28 and 29, That says this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Okay. Look now, what does that mean? The impression that Jesus made on these people was to have them walk away and be like, you know what? I'm not too sure what I thought about what he said, but that guy talks like he's in charge. He sounds like somebody who's in charge. And I would submit to you that that's exactly the point we're supposed to get from this sermon. Look, we've already said it. We read it this morning in Matthew 4, 17, that when Jesus started his ministry, he comes up and sums it up this way, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You could sum up everything that Jesus preached about by the announcement of a new way of living. It's a new reality, a new form of existence. It's a little bit like moving to a whole other country. And that country has all these different cultural norms that you've got to figure out in order to function well in it. In other words, a whole new kingdom. But this is the crazy thing. This guy talks like he's the king of that kingdom. Like he's in charge of it all. He's got, he's got an air to him. There's a poise and a dignity. Because when he talks, he's not quoting anybody. He's quoting the Old Testament, but then he's reinterpreting it all around himself. Look, Jesus is either impossibly arrogant, okay, or he's nuts, he's crazy, or he's exactly who he said he was. That is God incarnate, God in the flesh. Look, the whole sermon is screaming that Jesus is doing something totally new, even though it's continuous with the past. Think about this. His original audience, the people listening to him, did not have any greater cultural giant in their personal history than the character of Moses. Right? Moses, the one who received the law, the great prophet, the friend of God, the one who spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But over and over again, when you read the book of Matthew, you see that Jesus is mirroring Moses' experience. Don't believe me? Listen to this. Moses ascends up to Mount Sinai to get the law. Jesus climbs up on a mountain to preach the law in its fulfillment. Moses was born during a time of the slaughter of children. So was Jesus. Moses narrowly escapes the clutches of a cruel king. So does Jesus from King Herod. Moses was tested in the wilderness. So was Jesus right before preaching this sermon. Do you see the point they're making? It's as if the writer is saying, Jesus is stepping up into Moses' shoes so he can complete the work that he started. So the point is, none of this sermon is going to make a lick of sense to you this semester, or actually a lick of difference for that matter. If you don't read it as one of fulfillment, Jesus is enacting something. Yes, he's bringing an entire new way of living, but he's also describing himself. He will be the Moses that will do what Moses could never do, which is to be both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in him. Now, one last, one last little question to whet your appetite. How in the world is he going to do that? Well, I can give the short answer to it. He's going to do so by dressing you in his moral performance. And if you didn't get anything else out of this morning, get that. He will become what you ought to be. He will perfectly embody in himself the Sermon on the Mount. And then he's going to cloak you in his perfection, so that his father will never look at you the same way again. One of the things that comes with being able to preach is to uh, openly confess things. and I will openly confess to you that I suffer from road rage. I don't know why that happens, but if I get in my car, the one thing happens to me. I'm in a hurry. I don't know why. Uh, I know there's probably some of you here with whom I've cut off in traffic and I apologize for that as well. There goes that minister. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't don't know what happens to me. It's a psychological thing. I'll get counseling. Um, But a number of years ago when I was working on campus uh, uh, with RUF, uh, I got behind um, someone who was driving very slowly across campus, painfully slowly. And in my mind, I thought, you know, they're just loving the view, just looking around, look at all the buildings. There's the grove. Isn't that lovely? And I'm back there being like, I did not lay on my horn this time. This time I did not. But I was furious because I was in a hurry. Well, it turns out we were both headed to the student union. And back during those days, they had a big parking lot in the back. And so he parked on one sort of tray and I parked on the back one about five or six spaces away from him. And I got out to, uh, I got out there <laughs> to help him exercise atonement for what he had done in inconveniencing me, which was to offer him the dirty look, right? I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna glare at you just to let you know how <laughs> much you've pained me. But here's what stepped out of the car. A man fully clothed in full military dress. I have no idea why he was there or where he was going. But I also noticed he had a mechanical arm as well. Presumably something that had happened while he was serving. And let me tell you what happened to my anger. It went instantaneously. Because I suddenly saw this is a man who has fought and given up who knows what for my very right to be angry behind the wheel. And my attitude immediately changed. Hey, here's the question. How much of my embrace and love of what the Sermon on the Mount is gonna offer and bring to me is wrapped up in my knowledge of what the Father looks at me as? Because if I go into this thinking, okay, I mean, I, I, hope I, I hope I do all the things he wants me to do so that I can have the blessed life. Or if you're thinking, well, I mean, I guess he grades on a curve, you know? I mean, I can't be perfect. If that's the way you approach this, you still have a father who is condescending and judging and is maybe angry. But what if instead, in, instead of that, we hear the one who speaks with Authority. No one ever spoke like this man spoke. He acts like he's the king of the kingdom. And the best of kings not only demanded things from their people, but he provided for the very things he demanded. And that was good news. It was good news enough to propel people into looking into exactly what God brings to us for our healing with new eyes and a new energy to be able to obey look, the world needs a healing mechanism (laughs) that is at least as good as your body is at healing your own wounds. And Jesus' work on the cross is the lifeblood of that healing. It carries the spiritual oxygen that we need to breathe. Allegiance to Jesus is the scab that protects us as we heal. And we wait for his grace to form the collagen that gets layers upon which new tissue will be formed. And he's the one who comes and brings his Holy Spirit, who works all the miracle of closing up those wounds and bringing wholeness where there once was brokenness. So the Sermon on the Mount is walking us through that process. So who's in? Anybody curious? Come and join me this semester for this look at what God has for us. But but I want to leave you with at least one takeaway. I want to be better this semester about giving you takeaways, homework, if you will. All the kids love the homework, right? Find somebody to whom you can articulate your version of the good life to this week. A friend, a spouse, a child, whatever, that you can say, this is what I think my life, this is what I really wanted in life. This is where I wanted to go. This is who I wanted to be. Maybe you've achieved it. Maybe you haven't. But then in 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 the articulation, look back and ask yourself the question, does that come anywhere close to what Jesus is unpacking here? Man, that's an invitation. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, invite us into that to examine exactly how we view our life because you've given us this great vision and it's overwhelming and it's beauty and it's completeness and and it's counterculture. So we ask that you would be gracious to us as we look through those things that maybe, Father, somewhere, we don't know if we affect the world, we don't know if we affect the state, we don't know if we affect the city, but we know you've given us a little corner to embody this new life. And in that corner, we pray that we would bring healing. Would we be agents of that? Or we ask it all in Jesus' name.